Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about four views on the millennium. And our podcast today is sponsored by no one. <laughs> Because we don't have any sponsors on this podcast. That's why you like listening, because there's no ad breaks. We do have snacks on today's podcast brought to us by listener Kelsey. Uh, what did she call this, Bethany? Uh, butter toffee popcorn. Basically uh, Cracker Jack. Basically homemade Cracker Jack. It's delicious. It's so good. There are many skilled bakers in Quorum Deo, but the unofficial depth chart, Kelsey is highly regarded to be at the top of the yeah. depth chart. Now, if you'd like to, because this isn't baking. If you'd like to unseat Kelsey, Kelsey from the throne, you're welcome to bring us some snacks. <laughs> for the, I'm, I'm just telling you, like, I've asked around, and people are like, oh yeah, dude, she's she. This the bar is her, has been set really. This high. is her sweet spot. She knows what she's doing. So thanks, Kelsey, for blessing us with this delicious butter toffee popcorn. We are tackling. Uh, we have uh, we've had listeners reach out and say, hey, could you do a podcast on the millennium, uh, on different views on the millennium? If you don't know what we're talking about, you're the about Millennium to find Falcon. Out. Is that what you're not talking about? Star Wars Falcon? Nope. No. Y two K. Also not Y two K. Also not that. But uh, the Millennium spoken of in Revelation chapter twenty. So what we're going to do in this podcast is survey the four major views on this. There are four um, acceptable, you know, differently held views on how do we understand this part of Scripture and what is it that's going to happen. Um, Some more so. acceptable than others. Exactly. We're going to tell you which one we a favor. Because we have an opinion, but there are four views. So we're gonna have we're gonna start this by uh, having Dusty White read the text of Revelation twenty verses one through six, where where this millennial reign of Jesus Christ is spoken of, and lots of ink has been spilled on these verses. Revelation twenty verses one through six. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so you see the thousand years mentioned multiple times. Satan is bound and thrown into a pit for a thousand years. Uh, Christ reigns for a thousand years, and believers reign with him for a thousand years. And so you see repeated in this text this reference to a thousand years, a.k.a. a millennium. And this is where this conversation comes from. So... What, what are we talking about here? What is this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ spoken of in Revelation 20? Now, a little context first, okay? My grandfather, Herb, Herb died in 1987 at the age of 80. 
that means Herb was born in 1907. Herb came to, Herb was a pastor his whole life. And Herb came to, you know, came of age in the 1920s when there was all the, the controversy in the American Christianity between liberals and fundamentals. And you had the split at Princeton Seminary and the founding of Westminster and the battle over the Bible and the Scopes Monkey Trial. This is all the 1920s. Herb, if you had any questions about whether this thousand years meant a thousand years, he would just look at you and say, well, if you're not premillennial, you just don't believe the Bible. Like wow. it was that cut and dry wow. for Herb. It was okay. like, look, it says, it says he's going to reign for a thousand years. That's a literal thousand years. If you don't believe that, there's no further conversation we can have. And I just remember having a couple of conversations with my grandfather. I was like, well, I guess that's how easy it is to just, you know, just read the Bible and it says a thousand years and it's a thousand years. Um, it turns out, however, that one thing Herb probably wasn't taking into full account is the fact that this is apocalyptic literature. Right. And this is, you know, the books like Zechariah, Daniel, Revelation, Matthew chapter 24. These are apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic and is very full of dense images and profound symbolism. And so we have to take into account the kind of genre, kind of literature it is in order to rightly understand what it's saying. And so you notice the mention of the beast and the mark of the beast and the devil and the dragon and uh, Satan and the serpent. These are, there's highly symbolic figurative language here that to say that is true is not, not reading the Bible literally. It's just reading the Bible the way the literature. You're not a liberal. If you don't read this literally, that's basically what you're saying is it's okay to read this figuratively and still be, hold to the authority of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. In fact, I would say you have to read it. Yes. Yes. In order to do that. <laughs> but, but I can only say that now that Herb has passed yeah. on into glory, because if Herb was listening to this podcast, he would be calling me up yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> on his landline, a, a on his landline, he would give you a shout. He would. Um, all right. So what I did, anytime we're going to tackle a subject like this, I just look for, Hey, what book on my shelf would help us summarize it? And the book I pulled off the shelf is Anthony Hokema's the Bible and the future. Uh, a classic seminary text on the end times uh, and on sort of biblical prophecy. Hokum is a great uh, guide, and he has nice summaries of basic um, uh, paradigms. This was a book I had to read in seminary. Justin Curtis has it on his shelf from seminary. Everybody, everybody who took like eschatology in seminary, Hokum's book was a, a industry standard for a long time. And chapter fourteen is called Major Millennial Views. Let me summarize for you the four views we can have of the millennium. First of all, we begin with the correct view, Chris, which is amillennialism. Amen. Ooh, correct. Okay. Right out of the gate. Hokema starts with the best view, the most, I think, biblically defensible view, the one most held through the history of the church in the most consistent way. But anyways, we'll come back to that. Here it is. Amillennialism. He says the term amillennialism is not a very happy one. It suggests that amillennialists either do not believe in any millennium or that they simply ignore the first six verses of Revelation 20. Neither of these is correct. Here is what amillennialism believes. It holds that the kingdom of God is now present in the world as the victorious Christ is ruling his people by his word and his spirit. So it holds that this millennial reign spoken, up, uh, spoken of in Revelation 20 is what is happening right now in the world as, the king, as, as Christ rules his people by his word and his spirit. Hokema goes on to say, the amillennialist therefore expects the bringing of the gospel to all nations 
and the conversion of the fullness of Israel, that's Romans 11, to be completed before Christ's return. He also looks for an intensified form of tribulation and apostasy, as well as for the appearance of a personal antichrist before the second coming. Okay, so amillennialism says during the age of the church, during this reign of Christ, two things are going to happen at once, both the flourishing of the church and the progress of the gospel, but also intensified tribulation and apostasy and the appearance of eventually a personal antichrist. So it sort of holds all of that together and says this millennial reign is what's happening now. All right, second view, post-millennialism. Here is how post-millennialism is slightly different from amillennialism. Um, he quotes here from Lorraine Bettner, who is a key mid-20th century proponent of post-millennialism. By the way, Lorraine is a dude. Just like Meredith Klein is a dude. Yeah. There's like these theologians. These with beastly theologians. <laughs> yeah. Had very, very feminine names. Yeah. I'd never... Well, I had this, this book was on my dad's shelf and I just assumed Lorraine Bettner was a woman and she was yeah. a really good theologian. I was like, wait, Lorraine, is it, that's a guy? That's, a, I've never heard of a guy named Lorraine, but here he is. They were real secure back then. Anthony's going to quote from him. He says, um, post-millennialism, <clears throat> I'm having a hard time pronouncing these words today. Well, forever we've had a hard post-millennialism, time. Post-millennialism, that's a lot of syllables, is that view of the last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that so far it overlaps with amillennialism and that the world eventually is to be Christianized. So according to post-millennialism, the present age will gradually merge into the millennial age as an increasingly larger proportion of the world's inhabitants are to be converted to Christianity through the preaching of the gospel. This does not mean there will ever be a time on this earth when every person will be a Christian, but it does mean that evil in all its many forms eventually will be reduced to negligible proportions, that Christian principles will be the rule, not the exception, and that Christ will return to a truly Christianized world. So post-millennialism is probably the most optimistic of the eschatology. It actually believes that the whole world is going to be Christianized and that when Christ returns, he's coming back to a mostly Christianized world. Not that sin has been totally abolished, but that the gospel progress has been so great that nations and cultures and kingdoms are brought under the authority of Jesus. View number three, historic premillennialism. You can understand that the pre and post have to do with when does Christ return. So postmillennialism believes that Christ returns after that thousand-year reign where the world has become increasingly Christianized. Premillennialism holds the opposite view, that Christ is going to return and then reign on earth for a thousand years. So the second coming of Christ happens, and then Christ sets up his millennial kingdom, and he reigns on earth for a thousand years. And after that comes the final state, the final judgment of sin and death, the new heavens and the new earth, and so forth. And, and probably the best modern-day or recent-day proponent of historic premillennialism is George Eldon Ladd, who taught at Fuller Seminary for years, who was a key theologian in the middle of the 20th century, and who wrote some books that we still use today on the kingdom of God, and a very, very um, apt interpreter of scripture. And of course, the reason it's called historic premillennialism is because it's this view has been held by many, many figures throughout church history as well. Um, finally, we have dispensational 
premillennialism. This is the one that perhaps many of our listeners are most familiar with. If you grew up in a dispensational church or college or seminary, if you went to Grace College of the Bible, if you went to Dallas Theological Seminary, if you went to the church that was called the Bible Church, but really what we meant by that is we take the Bible literally and read Revelation 20 as a literal thousand years and all the prophecies as exactly literal, then you grew up in a dispensational premillennial context, as I did. Here's... This, this is the most. This is the most challenging one to summarize because it has a lot. Yeah, it's a lot going on. Really to it, but he, here's the essence. Um, the first thing you need to know, and I'm reading from Hokema here. Hokema says it should be stated at the outset that dispensational premillennialism is of comparatively recent origin. The theological system known as dispensationalism did not begin until the time of John Nelson Darby, who lived from 1800 to 1882. So this, this point of view really rose in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. It holds that um, God deals with humanity according to distinct dispensations. And in the Schofield Reference Bible, which is the classic dispensational text, it distinguishes seven of these dispensations. What is a dispensation? Well, it's just a, an era in which God's working out his purposes in a certain way. The key to understanding dispensationalism, the thing that unlocks it for you is just to simply understand this, that classic dispensationalism believes that God has one plan for the people of Israel and a separate plan for the church. So God is doing something with Israel and he's doing a different thing with the church. And so they do not see the church as the fulfillment of Israel or as the new Israel or as the culmination of God's purposes within Israel. They see God has a plan for Old Testament Israel. God has a different plan for the church. Therefore, they believe that um, God is going to fulfill his promises in the Old Testament to the people of Israel in a literal earthly kingdom with a capital in Jerusalem that has a temple where Jesus reigns on the throne of David from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and where sacrifices are offered in the temple because that's how they understand the Old Testament promises to be fulfilled. So, um, here's how they, (laughs) here's how they understand the millennium. Let me do the best I can here. Okay. Here's how the end times are going to work. Um, Christ is right now establishing his church. The church is kind of a parenthesis in the plan of God. It interrupts God's plan for Israel. Christ's return is going to happen in two stages. First, you're going to have the rapture. Um, the rapture is when Jesus comes to suck all the Christians out of the world. Uh, in, you know, it's like in the left behind movies where like you leave your clothes behind and you just disappear Gone. because Jesus comes and pulls you up to heaven. After that, the seven year tribulation starts. And this is from Daniel chapter nine. So you have a seven year tribulation where things get really, really bad. But the good news for you is if you trust in Jesus, you're not going to be here anyway, because you already got raptured. So things get really bad. There's a seven year tribulation. It ends with the battle of Armageddon. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, Christ returns in glory. He conquers his enemies. Then he begins his millennial reign. He ascends the throne in Jerusalem. He rules over a kingdom, which is primarily Jewish. He fulfills all the national promises to the Jews. They live on the earth in unresurrected bodies. This is not the new heavens and new earth yet. This is just the reign of Jesus where he's fulfilling all his promises to Israel. Meanwhile, the new Jerusalem exists and it's like hovering in the air above the earth. Okay, so all of us who are Gentile Christians are dwelling there. 
I'm reading. This is what Hokuba says. Dusty's laughing at me like this. I'm making. No, you're this doing up. an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the New Jerusalem is suspended in the air above the earth, shedding its light on the earth. Um, through this whole millennial reign, and then after the millennium is over, now we have the final state, final judgment, new heavens, new earth, the judgment of the unbelieving dead, the great white throne, and so forth. So, <laughs> my seventy professor Richard Pratt, because he was not a dispensationalist, and he kind of mocked this view. He would say, you have to remember that when the rapture happens, Jesus' feet don't touch the Mount of Olives. They just hover. He comes down and hovers right above the Mount of Olives, but he's not actually coming back. He's just coming almost back, and we're getting raptured up to where he is. So he hasn't really returned yet. The return is when his feet actually touch the Mount of Olives, and that's when he goes to take the throne in Jerusalem. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious with that view. Tell us what you really think about (laughs) dispensationalism. I'm being a little facetious with that view for the simple reason that I, uh, for, for a long time in this part of the country, that view was so taken for granted. It was like, if you think anything different than yeah. that, you obviously just aren't reading the Bible. And so it, totally. took, it took me going to seminary and reading church history and realizing, oh, actually, there's three other views that have been well held in the history of the church that are not held by idiots that maybe go, oh, maybe the dispensational view is not the only way to read the Bible. So I, have, I do have a little bit of angst. For I'm ways with that I'm sometimes with this has been held yeah. by people who are like, we're the only people who actually read the Bible. I was ordained in a denomination. And during the ordination, you know, meeting, I said, what if I am not, you know, what if I'm not premillennial? And, and they were like, uh, just say you are. Let's get through this. Just get through the interview and we'll figure that out later. But to, to your point, it was like, that's just what we all believe around here. So you're not really go, not that it doesn't really matter. Just go ahead and believe it for a minute. You yeah. know? Yeah. Okay. So those are the four views on millennialism, post millennialism, and then two versions of premillennialism, a historic premill and a dispensational premu premill. Isn't is doesn't dispensationalism also have like pre-trib, Mid-trib, post-trib, like it does. Yes, there's also things about yeah during the tribul does the yeah. does the tribulation happen? Yeah, where does the rapture happen? So yes, there's also some nuances in there, but we're not talking about that. <laughs> we're talking about the millennium. And <laughs> if you get those people together, they'll have full-on weekend conferences about where they Parson with that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. here's what I here's what I want to observe: a few things, and then we'll just tackle whatever you want to talk about. Um, my other set of grandparents came to faith because of dispensational premillennialism. The reason that happened is because my grandfather was a World War II veteran, so he had just been to war, and he had seen the entire world almost come under the sway of Hitler. And then you had the establishment of the nation of Israel quickly on the heels of World War II, which which hadn't been a nation for since the time of the New Testament. And suddenly, Israel is repopulated as a physical nation with actual borders on earth, and the, the Jewish people are repatriated into Palestine. And at the same time that that's all happening in my grandparents' life, a friend of theirs from high school comes back, shares the gospel with them, starts a Bible study up the street, and they start going to the Bible study, and they're studying all these passages in Daniel and in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, these promises of God fulfilling his covenant to his people and putting them back in the land. And my grandparents are reading this and going, holy crap, this is happening right now. And so they came to faith because of those, because of that interest in prophecy so I don't in any way want to denigrate that. That's actually done yeah. really good things for my family spiritually. But it also is interesting to me that um, which view of 
the millennium you hold has a lot to do with what are the circumstances of the world in the time that you're living. Mm. And so if you're living in a very pessimistic mid 20th century world where you've almost seen the world destroyed, it makes sense that like things are getting pretty bad and we, you know, we better trust in Jesus so that we can be on the right side of this when it all goes down. By contrast, most of the settlers of the United States and most of the key figures in the first great awakening, including Jonathan Edwards, were post-millennialists because they lived at a time in history where it felt like we have this whole new land and we've got freedom from the king and we have religious freedom for the first time and we're going to settle this new part of the world and we're going to establish churches here. And it really felt like the kingdom of God is going forward. God is on the move. Um, The earth is getting better and better. More and more people are being Christianized. And so there was this sort of optimism in the early colonial era, era that really fit very well with sort of, sort of a post-millennial vision of the world. So I'm saying all that to say that much of this does sort of connect to, do you feel highly optimistic or highly pessimistic about things right now? So what would you say is key to understanding the amil position? Like what, what, it, what is the amil position to unlock as far as interpreting scripture that sort of puts the other views, whether in a different light or on their heels or, or kind of shows some of the, the flaws in that interpretation? Um, I, for me, I'm, the answer for me has just been genre. Yeah. The, the yeah, simple yeah, yeah. answer for me has been reading Revelation in light of Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, like understanding apostle, apocalyptic literature has just helped me understand, oh yeah, the fascination people have with like, when do we get the mark of the beast? And is it on our foreheads or on our wrists? It like, there's a, there's a kind of crass literalism that I just realized like, yeah, that's not how we yeah. read the Bible. Like it's not how the book of revelation works. And so that has un- unlocked for me a, a greater sense of how do we read symbolic language? And that's why I have embraced amillennialism. The reason I'm not a post-millennialist is because I think it's, uh, I just don't see evidence that it's actually, uh, that it actually makes sense. Yeah. I, yeah. I like the optimism of it, but I just look at the world. And I'm like, well, we did Christianize all of Europe and it doesn't really look like that went super well. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can say, man, Christendom was, a, you know, it's like we, we suddenly are not seeing the visible fruit of what you would expect a quote unquote Christianized world to be producing. And so I think post-millennialism has some weaknesses as well. Yeah. What is it for you, Chris? Um, so I would, I would agree that the genre thing, the, the first time I heard someone explain apocalyptic literature and how that applied to revelation and how much revelation is pulling on old Testament apocalyptic literature, it was like, boom, mind blown. And, and I grew up too in a, in a very dispensational world. Uh, so it, it was helpful to see the way genre you, you start to reinterpret all the images and the symbols. And I mean, I remember even sitting in a, um, college Bible class. I went to York university in York, Nebraska and church of Christ. It's, I mean, I think they're more, more dispensational in some ways and, and sitting in Bible class and people trying to tease out what the locusts meant. And one guy was like, man, that locust, it sounds like helicopters. And like, you know, like they're trying to do, but, and, and it just felt, and, and I, I definitely wasn't um, reformed or had this position yet in life, but it just still felt a little weird. Like, are we really doing this? So it was helpful to hear how apocalyptic literature sort of shifts uh, an interpretation and you don't have to, you know, do all of that kind of hyper literalism. The other thing though is, is answering the question, 
what is, what's the purpose of the millennium there and, and revelation 20. And, and if you're, you kind of get at what is, what is going on, what is John emphasizing there? And if you reject the dispensational sort of splitting of the church in Israel, I think you, you have to land at one of the other three. And then from there, which makes the most sense of what other, other parts of scripture talk about. So for example, uh, as Hukama points out, one of the problems with the post mill position is how it interprets Matthew 25 and the great apostasy in second Thessalonians and how like those things are already in the past, but you kind of get this sense of, well, I don't think those things have just gone in the past, like they're present realities too. So to your point of the, the maybe overly optimistic aspect of, uh, of post-millennialism, that, that's why I, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't go that far, even though there's some, some things you kind of like, you're like, man, I would, I would love to be that optimistic. Well, and what I think is interesting is both Amil and <laughs> I can't say these words, you guys, both Amil and post-mill believe that in this age, the, the kingdom of God is going yeah. forward, the gospel is being proclaimed, and the church is being established. The difference is, here, let me read Hokema's uh, critique, the post-millennial expectation of a future golden age before Christ's return does not do justice to the continuing tension in history. Yeah between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil. The antithesis continues until the very end of history. Think of the references in the book of Revelation to the battle of Armageddon, or think of the parable of the tares and the wheat found in Matthew 13. Jesus taught that evil will continue to exist alongside of God's people until the time of the harvest. So I think that's right. And the way he, he describes a, uh, a future golden age, that's what I think post-millennialism, I've just never seen it. Just like, can you point to a time in history? And they would all say, well, no, because it hasn't happened yeah, yet. Yeah. But, but I just have a hard time believing that there is coming a future golden age where their world will be so Christianized, where the church will be so flourishing, and where not just will the church be established, but it will actually be healthy. <laughs> that that it, it, we could think of it as like the world has been Christianized. The kingdom of God has sort of been has taken over the earth. And I just think for that to happen, you'd have to convince me that not only are lots of people going to become Christians, but that the church can actually look like the church everywhere on the earth. And I'm just thinking, uh, yeah, I don't it, see it. It, it sometimes flirts, even though they never really say this, sometimes it flirts with an overrealized eschatology. Right. Yes. Um, I mean, it, the thoughtful post mills are always going to pump the brakes to going that far, but at sometimes there's a sense of like, but, that's what you're saying. Like there's a sense of before Christ comes back, it's going to be like almost to the point of as if he was yes. fully here, but then we still need him to come back. It's like, I, and I, again, the tension of scripture, I, it doesn't, to me, the overall thread and thrust of the new Test, old Testament, new Testament, isn't that it's going to get that close before he comes back. There's going to be, yeah, the gospel goes forward. People are going to become Christians. The church is going to advance, but there's still this crying out, Lord, come Lord Jesus, because there is suffering, there is pain, there is evil in the world. And that tension seems to even heighten before Christ's return. Yes. Bethany, what do you think? You grew up in this world with lots of end times prophecies and books and <laughs> all that stuff. It sounds like a really great movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. But I'm also just like, oh, there's just so much stuff that needs to happen. And it makes sense to me why I feel like people would gravitate towards it and hold on to it because like who wouldn't want some really obvious things to happen in the world and be like, yeah, this is true. This is how we know the Bible's true. 
Um, but yeah, I was saying before we turned the mics on that I grew up in a dispensationalist church and it wasn't until I came to Quorum Deo and heard Bob preach through the book of Revelation that I was like, what? And then I just kind of stopped thinking <laughs> about it because I was like, this, this sounds way less crazy and way, way more like what actually might happen than what I had learned growing up. Hokama raises a critique of historic pre-mill that I hadn't thought about before, but that I want to read. You know, the pre-mill view is, of course, that the, you know, the world's going to get bad and then, you know, finally Christ will come and establish his reign. And then after that, um, we'll bring the new heaven and the new earth. Hokama observes the return of the glorified Christ and of glorified believers, because remember Revelation 20 says the dead in Christ came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The return of the glorified Christ and of glorified believers to an earth where sin and death still exist would violate the finality of their glorification. He's like, how'd you like Chris to die, go spend some time with Jesus, and then come back here to reign for a thousand years? <laughs> like, that's like a reverse move. It's like, really? I've got to go back there and hang out where death Psych, exists. Just and to, sin and, false, like, false alarm, people. So he asks a good question. Why should believers who have been enjoying heavenly glory during the intermediate state be raised from the dead in order to return to an earth where sin and death still exist? Would this not be an anticlimax? Do not glorified resurrection bodies call for life on a new earth, which is an even better argument, I think, to say if the resurrection body is like Christ's body, then it calls for a new heaven and a new earth. Bob, what arguments against amillennialism have you come across that are you think are, are more thoughtful critiques? Uh, I haven't come across a ton that I find thoughtful. I think the biggest argument is just like, so you're saying this this doesn't mean a thousand years. Or the like the thousand, yeah, the thousand years is just like a figure of speech, just mm -hmm. like a an epoch of undefined time. Yeah. So yeah, it's usually a, a literal argument that people would push against that. I don't know, maybe there's better ones. I just what's <laughs> what's happened for me is I think all mill is sort of like the the position that that feels most mediating to me because it it lives in the already not yet. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's saying like, yep, during this age the kingdom is going forward and we're still experiencing the effects of sin and the fall. And so because of that, I think it's like it's it seems easier to me to critique either a very optimistic post mill or a very pessimistic pre mill. And I, I haven't heard as many people have thoughtful arguments against the Amil position. What have you heard? I would say the same. It is the, in one, the literalness of it. But but if I think even within some of the, the post-mill, Amil discussions about how they tease out some of the details of, of verses one through six in particular, but some of that is just trying to make sense of the imagery the best that they can. Uh, for me, another argument, though, in, in favor of Amil is if you look at the entirety of the book of Revelation, and this is this is kind of a big scope of it, but you see these patterns of both victory and evil kind of, you know, seeming like it's going to overwhelm the church. And so it almost gives this cyclical pattern. Yes. And the Amil position gives that exact room for that. We see times when the church is very ascendant. We see times when the church, when evil seemed to be ascendant and, and just history kind of has these ebbs and flows and it accounts for that without having to get overly detailed and in interpreting every little, you know, was Hitler the Antichrist? I'm sure a lot of people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Obviously he wasn't, but we don't have to play the, necessarily play those games within the Amil position. We kind of let things play out because we know they're going to be people that 
kind of rise and ascendant and very evil, but then the church is also going to flourish. And so we can kind of wait those things out. So I think that just kind of within the, the whole context of the book of Revelation, Al Mill makes more sense. The best work on that, Greg Beal's commentary on Revelation. Amen. Really, really helpful. If you want a scholarly resource on just how do you read the book of Revelation, G.K. Beal's commentary on Revelation is the one that showed me that cyclical pattern in a way that I said, yep, that's hard to argue with. It's there. Guys, I'm just listening to you guys care about this, which I appreciate because we should care about. But I became a Christian in the 90s. And so people are carrying around their Ryrie Study Bible and the, the latest Tim LaHaye book at the same time. And I became a Christian at this time. And I remember people, like the next thing they would ask you is if you were premillennial or postmillennial. And I was like, I... I don't know what that word means. Like, <laughs> what yeah. are you even talking about? What are you even talking about? And so just to have the conversation, I would like have an answer and then I would read their face and be like, uh, no, I apologize. Uh, I think I'm a millennial. Uh, no, I apologize. I think uh, so. So anyway, all of that to say, my question for you guys, pastoring churches for people who get really deep in the weeds on end times or deep in the weeds on new earth, older, or, you know, like just deep in the weeds on a certain particular thing, what would you pastorally warn against or encourage or say? I think our eschatology matters for how we live in the world and for what we expect in the world. And so I want, I think it's important for us to wrestle with the text of scripture. That's part of what we're trying to do here is just to say, what does Revelation 20 mean? Good Christians always start with the text and just say, what is the Bible saying? Right. So at one level, I want people to care about this just because we're Bible people and we should care about what the Bible says. Additionally, our eschatology determines how we expect the world to be. And generally, here's what I have seen. People who tend to be dispensational pre-mill, at least in my upbringing, we're sort of like, well, who cares about the world? We're all going to get out of here anyway. You know, it's like, don't, you don't need to worry about recycling or about global, you know, temperature changes and whatever. Just we're going to be raptured out. Who cares? And so there tends to be this living too loosely in the world. Yeah, sure. Post-millennialism, I think, tends toward a kind of dominionism that is troubling to me where it's like, well, we all better all get everybody elected to the city council and, you know, change all the laws and, and establish the kingdom of Christ. I mean, it's there, it, it, the connection between post-mill and theonomy is yes, very tight. It's tight. There's a reason. And so, I, so for, I think there's good in some of that, but that troubles me when we start to think about the ways it be, can become coercive in a way that starts to feel like a Muslim state for some people that are very energized about post-millennialism. And so I think... A, an amillennial view, I think, helps me live in the world with two kinds of expectation. One, a real hopeful vision for the flourishing of the church of like, man, the church is going to go through hard times and good times, but overall, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is going forward because Jesus has risen and he is reigning and nothing is changing that. Mm. But also, man, I shouldn't expect that the church in America is always going to flourish because maybe the church is flourishing everywhere else, but right now, America's taking some beatings because... Mm evil is flourishing. And so it, it helps me to live in a world that isn't overly pessimistic, isn't overly optimistic, but rather is realistic about both the reign and rule of Christ as it's currently experienced and also the necessity for Christ to come again and finally triumph over yeah. evil. The, mm. the one thing I would add to that That's helpful. is, and, and Bethany, you made a good point when you, you talked about those that 
with more of a dispensational leaning really into that, they're, they're kind of looking at the various things that are happening in the world and like, oh, that's happening. And it, it does this thing to your faith or at least the attempt. And, and what I've found is when people are so fixated, you know, every time something happens in the Middle East, it's this, or, you know, they just get fixated on the news and these events. What happens is their faith gets centered on that rather than Christ. And so it, you actually, there isn't a gospel centeredness to, to their faith. And that's sad to me because the hope is actually in the life, death, and resurrection and return of Christ more so than it is my being able to interpret all these different events and align them with revelation. So I think what it can do to people's faith is it can center it on something other than Christ. And, and so my encourage, pastoral encouragement is always, hey, that over there, you think it's what you want, what you're trying to anchor in, actually, here, let's just look over at Jesus and he's, he's reigning. To your point, Bob, that, that's actually going to satisfy what you're, you're kind of chasing after. That's good. The other thing I'm thinking about while you're talking about that is that that's a, when I'm looking at those things, it's always with anxiety. It's yeah, not exactly. necessarily with a hope in Christ. That's good. That's a good word, Chris. I imagine there's going to be a part two to this podcast because what I want to know is what do listeners hearing this want us to talk more about? Because I imagine there's like, okay, well, that raises this question for me. So uh, I want to open the, the email box and just say, great, listeners, now you tell us what part two of this conversation should look like. Part one was a response to y'all anyway, because you reached out and said, hey, talk about the millennium. So how do you want us to take the conversation forward? Feel free to let us know. We'd love to chop it up and do some theology and talk about Revelation 20 further. But I think we're going to land this this episode here with just that simple overview of those four views and a simple understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about four views on the millennium. And then you let us know where to go from here. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.